This is Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is now the official radio program of the Catholic and Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. Today, our guest will be Brendan Radican, who just completed his first year of medical school. He's going to give us an insider view of what the first year of medical student is like, so you can have a better understanding of what your doctors go through and have gone through to get where they are now. But first, we're going to cover some recent medical news from Andrew. All right, Tom, I was looking and kind of perusing through some recent medical news, and I found two articles I wanted to share today. One, I'm passionate about sleep. I, I don't get enough I'm of it. I'm with you. <laughs> You've got limited time. You want to make it count. And so I, I love talking to people about sleep. So I came across an article in the Journal of Experimental Psychology regarding what to do to help facilitate sleep onset. Oh, beautiful. Right? So you're not laying there tossing and turning. Okay, I've only got seven hours or six or five. Right. Ho- don't put seven. our listeners to sleep, though, please. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> and so how, how can we fall asleep quicker? And this looked at just one simple intervention. Um, in the past, people have been recommended to journal before going to bed okay. to help to sleep. And so the study looked at journaling in particular for five minutes before going to bed, what really was the best thing to journal, and they put them into different groups, and they found that people who journaled a to-do list did much better than people who journaled other things, like what they've done, what they're thinking about. So actually writing down your to-do list, things that you're planning for tomorrow, facilitates sleep onset better than journaling other things, and they found that there was a correlation between that and even its specificity. The more detail-oriented you were regarding your to-do list, the quicker you fell asleep. Because often when we're falling asleep, we're thinking about the things we need to get done, but it's like we've almost transferred it from our thoughts to this list. And then you can let it go. And so it's it's something that, you know, I always think about non-medical ways to help people. Yes. And this is something that's free, easy, and you can do at home. No bad side effects, and you might even get more work done tomorrow. How much better was it in the study? You know, looking at it, let me pull up the exact numbers here. I'm a big picture kind of guy. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but it was it was significantly different. And in addition to significance, the thing that struck me was it, the fact that the more detail-oriented it was, the better you did. Excellent. So I would take five to ten minutes before going to bed, write down your plans for tomorrow, and I hope that you sleep very well. Well, thank you, Andrew. I hope you do, too. I've, and I've got a second article, actually, do. since this was kind of a... A brief one that I wanted to address. This is another practical at-home tip for nausea. Nausea. Yeah, that happens once in a while, especially if you have kids. There's there's a (laughs) lot of a lot of times it comes up and you know, being on call, this is a a call I get frequently from folks. It might be on the weekend or overnight. What do I do to help with nausea? And so this is an article from the Annals of Emergency Medicine comparing two interventions for nausea. One is ondansetron, or Zofran, which is routinely prescribed, a a prescription medication for nausea, versus rubbing alcohol. Uh, What do you do with the rubbing alcohol? Right. So (laughs) the the rubbing alcohol, the intervention was to put it on a rag and to hold it by your face and inhale it. Oh. And believe it or not, they they took a couple different groups, the the ondansetron only, the rubbing alcohol only, and then the combination. And by analyzing these groups, they found that the rubbing alcohol was actually more effective than the ondansetron for nausea prevention. And then where did the combination fit in? The combination was actually slightly worse in this study, but it I, I don't know that it actually is worse in reality. It might just be a function of the study. But the three groups that, uh, let me see, the, the percentage of those who still needed more relief after 30 minutes, 27% with the isopropyl alcohol, the rubbing alcohol only, 25% with the combination, and 45% with the ondansetron only. So they, it was the ondansetron, if you were doing the, the rubbing alcohol, you were inhaling it off of a rag, it was about equivalent whether or not you took the ondansetron. So uh, if I'm reading this right, three out of four people felt better after inhaling the rubbing alcohol. Correct. For how long? 30 minutes. For 30 minutes. And it's just available to them. You know, it's not something you have to sit there and inhale it, but 
It's something that I think would be safe for listeners to try at home. So they don't have to have it in front of their face for the whole 30? Correct. You would just have it available that when you felt nauseated, Feel it. you could take uh, an inhalation of this rag soaked in rubbing alcohol. And we want to be clear that this would be dangerous to ingest. Yes. This is something you just want to breathe in, not something you want to consume. It would be even poisonous if you ingested it. Yes, it, it. would. Thank but the you. smell of it helps relieve nausea. Very so good. There's two things you can try at home when needed. I love I love the non-pharmacologic ways to be better and feel better. Thank you, Andrew. If you just tuned in, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio. And now we are over to Andrew's tip of the day. All right. I've got I've got a tip for you today, and I'm actually combining two recommendations from the USPSTF today, both regarding preeclampsia. Ooh, better than post-eclampsia or worse? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've, I'm waiting for my first post-eclampsia case. <laughs> but this recommendation is in regard to screening for preeclampsia and in prevention. And so it, it, the USPSTF recommends screening women throughout pregnancy for this condition and using a baby aspirin to prevent it. And so the first question uh, is obviously what is preeclampsia? Thank you, Andrew. And so this <laughs> this is a medical condition that happens to pregnant women. It occurs for reasons we don't completely know, but are related to the circulation between the placenta and the uterus and mother, and basically related to the blood. The things that happen with preeclampsia that we identify is high blood pressure in the mom, in the mom, increased swelling in the mom which all ladies get some swelling, but significant swelling, protein in the urine, hmm. and injury to the liver. This can unfortunately progress to even seizures, uh, very thin blood, and death if treatment is not taken. And so it's an extremely significant problem when it occurs. And actually the treatment is to deliver the baby and the disease remits. And so it's something that's still very confusing to a lot of people, but it has to do with the circulation, and it's something, because it's so dangerous, we want to do everything we can to prevent it. Does it typically come in at a certain point in pregnancy, or can it happen at any time? It can happen at any time, but the vast majority of the time it happens later in pregnancy. In so the second trimester, third trimester? End of the second, beginning okay. of the third. Very commonly even in the, in the middle of the third. So many women may be induced because their blood pressure is getting too high as and they approach their due date. So it's usually a safe time to deliver the baby when the symptoms get bad. Fortunately, most of the time it is. Good. The second topic or the second item that I think people would want to know is who is at risk for preeclampsia? Is this something that I need to worry about mm -hmm. or for my, my loved ones? So the risk factors are, number one, any history of preeclampsia. I guess that goes without saying. Multifetal gestation, so twins, triplets. People who have had hypertension before they were pregnant. People with kidney disease or diabetes or autoimmune diseases. Other things that are less associated would be a first-time baby, obesity, family mm -hmm. history, or elderly, we, they're called elderly gravitas, <laughs> uh, women over 35 <laughs> is, is the medical term. You're going to make a lot of friends there, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> hey, not my words, ACOG. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll put Chris to task on that one. <laughs> but those are, those are the folks who are at risk. So how, how is prevention achieved? And it is done through aspirin. It's the only drug that we know of that can truly prevent preeclampsia only about 10% of the time. But if you're one of that 10%, you're really grateful because it's so, so serious. The USPSTF recommends 81 milligrams of aspirin, and they recommend starting it at 12 weeks of gestation. In, in thinking about this, I would actually recommend starting it before you become pregnant if you know you're at risk. It's de been demonstrated many times that aspirin is safe to take during pregnancy, and we also know from NAPRO technology that aspirin can help ameliorate many small clotting diseases sure. that can even cause miscarriages. And that's my read on the situation is why they recommend starting at 12 weeks is because, unfortunately, people who would, who would be destined to lose that baby, uh, that would have already happened. So most miscarriages happen in the first 12 weeks. ACOG and most obstetricians don't really know why. We know from NAPRO technology that many of these things are related to either progesterone or blood clotting disorders. Aspirin can help alleviate that. So 
Andrew Mullally's recommendation <laughs> is if you're at risk, definitely talk to your doctor. Everyone's an individual circumstance, but I think it would be safe for most people to start a baby aspirin even prior to becoming pregnant. So that is your preventative health care tip of the day today. Thank you, Andrew. Full of practical wisdom with low side effects and high potential benefit. And before we go to the break, I'll pose our medical trivia question of the day. And, and this is one I have to uh, give credit to my son, Michael, who's training to be a resident assistant at a Catholic uh, university. And he asked me this about this maneuver that I'm going to mention. I had never heard of it, so I looked it up because I thought you might want to know it too. So my question is, what is the Bacchus maneuver? And how can it prevent early death? And Bacchus is spelled capital B-A-C-C-H-U-S. So in the fourth segment of the show, you'll get the answer and find out what is the Bacchus Maneuver. But until our break is over, this is Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio. All right, and we are back with Brendan Radigan from Marion University talking about medical school. So you are a first-year medical student that just graduated, now your second year. That's right. Okay, so we've got to figure out about what is it like life in medical school for a Catholic medical student. Right, because I don't think most people out there in the pews, their cars, or their homes really know what it's like. So you're going to pull back the curtain on life in medical school. <laughs> so... To, Give us, give us a little bit of background. Tell us, Brennan, why mm -hmm. did you want to become a physician? Yeah. Um, so first of all, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm really, really happy to be here. Um, so medicine, what drew me to medicine was first, I would say, the basic sciences in undergraduate. I did um, particularly well in organic chemistry, which tended to be the pre-medicine weed-out course. Um, <laughs> That's about right. Yeah. And has no relationship at all with taking care of patients. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I haven't learned anything about it since the MCAT. <laughs> exactly. But that is okay. But I figured, well, maybe there's something to this. Maybe this is something I might end up being good at. And thank God for my parents, who were wiser than my 18-year-old self, who <laughs> encouraged that pursuit. So... I'd say the first the science of medicine is what drew me to medicine, but then it's really what sealed the deal for me was the clinical aspect. So during my pre-medical -medi advising, I was told it's best to get clinical experiences. So I became an EMT and rode a- uh, Which is? An emergency medical technician. I was part of a volunteer rescue squad, the night crew. Wow. Uh, nice. So every eight days we would ride and that taking care of patients, especially in that state where they're- the most vulnerable. I just really, really felt like I was endeavoring to do what Christ called me to do. So I finished my pre-med studies, and unfortunately, my story gets a little bit more complicated, but that's definitely what drew me to, um, to pursue medical school. And tell us these complications, because you are a non-traditional medical student. I am. I am non-traditional, or as my <laughs> beloved friends at medical school call me. I'm the dad of the class. <laughs> uh, not because of age or wisdom, just because I think I have bad fashion. But um, <laughs> I do, uh, I'm, I'm very much a non-traditional medical student. Uh, so that means that I did not immediately enroll in medical school the fall after I graduated from undergrad. Instead, so when I was 18, I agreed to a Army Reserve Officer Training Corps contract in which I would get my undergraduate paid for and I would serve in the active duty Army. So I was active duty Army. I was commissioned as an artillery officer in 2014, and I was in the active duty from 2014 to August of 2017. So when three I full years. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and um, but they paid for your college. They did. Oh, it was a it was a very fair deal. And although there were the best of times and worst of times, sometimes it, active duty was not my calling. I, I always <laughs> felt like it was medicine that I really wanted to do. But it was a fair deal, and I'm happy I did it. And hopefully, some of the skills I've learned are I'm able to take into the medical community, like targeting. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, in a much softer sense, yes. Yes, and so you also have a family, which is non-traditional for most medical students. Yes, I am the extremely happy husband of my beloved bride, Margaret, and I. we have two children and a third in utero. Thanks. Congratulations. Guys. Very, yeah. Do you think that that history and your current family life makes it easier or harder to be a medical student? So I would have thought that it would have been harder because you would think that, oh, there's all these distractions and all kids at home make it harder. But it's actually knowing that I have a wife and children at home really motivates me to be efficient during the day. Um, So lecture typically ends around noon. And although there's not really a good way to shortcut studying, sometimes it just takes time. I am typically able to be home by five in order to see my children. So what's a typical med student day for a first year? Yeah, so a lot of students study, have very different study habits, and it works, which is remarkable. But what are the scheduled classes? Definitely. So lecture is typically from eight to noon. Um, So it would be four separate hour-long There's no afternoon lectures? (laughs) I had 40 hours of lecture a week. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Those were the days when you had to walk uphill to medical school. Both also. ways <laughs> against the wind. Yes. <laughs> At least it wasn't in the UP, right, Tom? <laughs> At least. It was just Minnesota. <laughs> so around 8 to noon, and then we'll have clinical lab training for usually uh, two hours, a couple of times a week also, in addition to And that. what does that mean? So we'll go into a clinical skills part of, my, of Marion's Medical School. And we will do the basics. We'll listen to heart sounds. We will um, practice palpation skills. We'll look in each other's eyes and we'll poke each other with sticks and (laughs) all those sorts of things that all the bad habits we want to get out of the way before we actually see patients. Real patients. And I've seen the setup at Marion. It's incredible. It is state of the art. What, What topics are covered during the first year of medical school? Yeah. So... It's a wide variety, depending on which medical school you attend. At Marion, we have an integrated systems curriculum. Okay. So to start, so from about August to November, we'll do a basic biochemistry. We call it foundations, scientific foundations in medicine, and three months of gross anatomy, which is cadaver dissection, which was remarkable, a remarkable experience, just an amazing learning opportunity. But after that, we begin our systems curriculum. So right in November, we start our organ systems curriculum with cardiovascular, pulmonary, and renal. So heart, lungs, kidney. Very good. And that was where the love of medicine started for me, I think. I mean, it's just, although basic sciences are very interesting, the hard medicine, this is a person, this is their body, physiology, that was what really So you only had me three months of basic sciences in med school. That's how we did okay, it. Okay, so great. Man, yeah. That's neat. It no. is, it's interesting because yeah. there are a lot of different programs out there. I know I didn't graduate too long ago, mm-hmm. but we, we definitely had basic sciences through the first year. And I, I remember not getting to the systems till even later. Yeah. It was very much grind it out. You're going to have to know this later. I, I found the first year to be really tough and Mm. and almost, you know, it it wasn't uplifting. It was just like, you've got to learn a lot of science before (laughs) we even let you talk about the body. Well, at a meeting I attended at the Vatican on healthcare, there were some people talking about new med school paradigms. And there's even Mm. talk about going to three years where it's all integrated systems-based courses and no basic science. Interesting. So there apparently is different ways of doing this. Do you feel like it was too much at the time to absorb, to understand? They say it's drinking from a fire hose, and that is what I experienced. However, I had such a wonderful experience with faculty. They are super receptive to questions and office hours that it was, it, it, they gave us the skills to navigate drinking from the fire hose. Um, there's a key principle we are taught immediately, and that's the principle of high yield material. So okay. Material that is likely to come up time and time again. 
which will help you understand multiple different topics and is most likely to be tested on our national standardized examinations. So the teachers point this out? Definitely. Oh, wonderful. Otherwise, everything seems like it's of equal importance. Mm -hmm. Some teachers are better than others at indicating what might be high yield. They might look for our different examination test review sources for us in order to help us identify what's high yield. But yeah, they are. Some faculty could teach my three-year-old how to be a good doctor. They are so wonderful. (laughs) What what is the best thing about being a first-year medical student? (laughs) Just being able to finally learn medicine, I would say, because all of us had to take the pre-medicine curriculums in undergraduate. We had to suffer through inorganic chemistry, physics, and we're all wondering, (laughs) how is this relevant? How was it relevant? I don't think it was. um, (laughs) It is is interesting because the the people who kind of, you know, want to go to medical school, I, for myself, I kind of knew from a young age, but even... Even through high school, you think about other stuff, but yeah. medicine was always a focus for me. Mm. And it was just like that. It's like, okay, this is great. I know I need to learn it, but this is not this is not my calling. Mm. And it's it's interesting being in classes with people who are, you know, lab researchers, and they're like, "This is it." <laughs> I said, "This is not it yet." <laughs> so it's it's got to be great to be be doing medical things. Yes. So I mean. The difference between studying inorganic chemistry in a wet lab and then gross anatomy cadaver dissection is just a night and day difference for me. It's like the fields aren't even related because one is such a such a tangible part of dealing with the human person where the other is way more fundamental on the almost on the atom level. Um, So finally being able to do medicine, I would say, is definitely the best part. What is the toughest thing about being a first year med student? So, <laughs> there's only one. Right? There's only one. <laughs> <laughs> Having too much time and fun. No, that's, that's definitely not it. Never said by a med student anywhere. <laughs> um, I would say the toughest thing for me was this f- nagging feeling of inagu- inadequacy that I had on day one, and it did not yield until I got my passing scores on my last exam. On your last exam? Whole year. I never once was in danger of not passing a course. I always scored either average, above average. Sometimes I scored very well on examinations. I was never a threat to failing. But I still had this nagging fear driving me that if you don't do a little bit more, you might drop out and have to redo it. You know, there's actually a name for that. I listened to way too many psychology courses, books on tape. It's called imposter syndrome. And it's incredibly common, especially among the very successful. They think, oh, when they find out what I'm really like, they'll realize I don't belong here. That's Okay, that's exactly right. (laughs) So that's, (laughs) I can relate with that. Um, And I don't think it's uncommon Mm -mm. just because I'm overwhelmed by the learning and the background clinical experiences of a lot of my peers sitting next to me. And it's overwhelming. And they really, they ask you to do almost an impossible job, learn everything mm-hmm. about this in whatever period of time. And mm-hmm. so you do your best, but it is, it's very difficult. So that, I don't think you're alone in feeling that way at all. Well, we've come to the end of the first segment, talking with medical student Brendan Radican, and we'll be back again after our break. We're back on Dr. Doctor, continuing our interview with Brendan Radican, who just successfully completed his first year of medical school, Marion University in Indianapolis, Indiana. Brendan, mm-hmm. what was the biggest surprise you experienced during your first year of medical school? Something you might not have expected about medical school. Yeah, so I thought coming in, I have four years of medical school training. I have four years of full-time medical lecture and training, indoctrination. But what I didn't realize was that I'm still just not going to know very much by the end of it. It's, <laughs> it's, hard to, it's hard to wrap your mind around that after a year, I, I've only been doing it this, this for a year, but I feel like everything I know, I find out more that I don't know. And that is a little bit you know, foreboding, but I, I enjoy the subject matter, so I drive on and it is okay. 
Well, good. Humility is the first lesson to wisdom. Lots of opportunity in med school. Yes. <laughs> Every day. What do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions that the lay public has about what medical training is like? That's a, that's a really good question. So just in my experiences with people who have maybe less of a relationship with physicians or med students, I think there's this very weird conspiracy theory about big pharma. There's ah. this big pharmaceutical company who is sitting on my dean's chair <laughs> and you know manipulating us all like a puppet, and we all have to sign this form that says we're going to only prescribe pharmacy, and it's none of, just none of it is true. Haven't you got the free trips yet? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Gosh, if we, we haven't either. <laughs> you know what's so interesting at, at Michigan State where I trained. You were, you were literally going to get in big trouble. If you went to one dinner where they talked about a medication, you were gonna, you have to put your name on a list and you get, you get penalized, even up through residency. Um, but I thought it was a huge difference because the vet students were big time influenced by the, you know, quote unquote, pharma manufacturers. <laughs> <Pet> pharma. <laughs> but uh, that, that is something I, I think that is a common misconception. Now, I don't, I don't want to stir up a controversy or poke a bear, but I know the vaccine controversy is close to many people's hearts. And very, we had a show on that. Very frequently, <laughs> people will refer to the way that medical students are trained like it's a factory. Like medical students walk into this big medical school factory, they get stamped with this pharmaceutical stamp, and then they walk out. And it's just, just simply, I think, disrespectful to the students who work very hard to learn the evidence-based techniques that hopefully they'll employ in their future practices. I'm, I'm still waiting for my check from, <laughs> from the vaccine manufacturers. You'll be waiting I, a long time. I've been time. told that it's coming from, from patients, <laughs> clearly, uh, but I, I'm still waiting. Brendan, we know as a, as a, a passionate Catholic, you have mm -hmm. a, a good understanding between faith and science, mm -hmm. faith and medicine. Yeah. How would you say that Catholic understanding compares to, you know, the majority of what your classmates' understanding is? Oh, that is another awesome question. So I have philosophy training in my undergraduate, um, although I didn't receive any Catholic philosophy training, sadly, because it is a glorious wealth of information. I have, I feel like, a very interesting perspective on the relationship between faith and science, especially from a Catholic worldview. I had to relearn much of what I learned in undergraduate, but that is okay. <laughs> I hope that I'm being consistent with two of my intellectual heroes, St. Thomas Aquinas and John Paul II. Mm. St. Thomas Aquinas, obviously, the angelic doctor, had much to say on this relationship. And no one for a second would doubt that this intellectual giant would ever dismiss science as something that's inconsistent with the truths of the faith as if there is more than one truth, the truth of science and the truth of faith. So I am very reason responsive in this sense where I see science as a wonderful tool to discovering the material universe. Some, I feel like wrongly, maybe some of my peers might think that there are scientific truths that are founded in reason and there are religious truths that are experiential or feelings-oriented. Ah. And that is such a false and crippling dichotomy that it has actually become a serious obstacle to evangelization in the school. Um, but those are just a couple introduction thoughts. I know this is a very huge issue, but that's kind of how I would see the difference. Is, And obviously the, the great union of science and truth being the splendor of truth himself, our Lord, um, taking on human flesh himself. And although I am not qualified, obviously, to uh, discuss the theological implications of this, but just being a Christian and knowing the Lord and knowing there is one truth really, I think, informs kind of our scientific inquiry here. I've seen uh, a study yeah. that showed that the average medical student mm -hmm. is much more politically liberal in beliefs than mm -hmm. the average patient is. Mm -hmm. Would you say that fits your experience thus far? I think I would. I don't know if I um, have know enough to control med students versus other students my age, because I know many students in their early, or many people in their early 20s are more prone to be politically liberal. Sure. Um, but that is most certainly my experience in medical school. Now, I, now, this first year, I am a little bit past the Affordable Care Act controversy, but I'm sure that would have been very close to home with many medical students if, if I had been going through medical school during that time. 
But just, and I, I only know this, I haven't read any data on this, but just in my personal encounters with a lot of my friends, it is certainly the case that they are politically liberal. You're listening to Dr. Doctor if you just turned, tuned in. And if you did not just tune in, you're still listening to Dr. Doctor as we're talking about what medical student life is like during the first year with Brendan Radican. Brendan, how are ethics taught at your medical school? I, I love this question. So ethics, so medical students are very scientifically minded. Mm-hmm. They want to observe the data. And then they hopefully want to act on the data in a way that would best interest their patients. Ethics is not something that can be studied in a lab, believe it or not. And what's lost, sadly, amongst medical students is this extremely basic is-ought distinction. Ah. So not that this, you might find a scientific survey explaining that this many people in this area believe this. <laughs> well, that doesn't tell us anything about how we ought to behave. And uh, you know, nobody needs to study human history very long to know <laughs> that humans do not do what they ought to. When it comes to formal training, there's been a little bit of a mix. We did have an ethicist lecture um, on the various topics of particularly healthcare ethics, mm-hmm. so principles of autonomy, the beloved principle of double effect that's very frequently referred to. But later in the year, we had a much more clinically ethics-oriented lecture time. Now, that, unfortunately, has kind of devolved into more of a, what I would consider the intersection of relativism and what we call consequentialism. Consequentialism consequentialism being kind of this, this mode of thought where the ethically good decision to make is based upon the outcomes that result from the decision. Now, this it doesn't take very long to examine this. Is that the end justifies the mean theory? This is the ends justify the means. Yes. And for our listeners who are interested in where this is, it's Romans 3.8 that very famously declares that the ends do not, in fact, justify right. the means. Um, but it is implicitly held, I would say, by many medical students But the dangerous part here, because this consequentialism is easy to address, the dictatorship of relativism is not. And that is an extremely ubiquitous phenomena in medical school students and I think amongst all young people today. Ethics is very hard to teach when somebody thinks that whatever you think is the right thing to do is true for you. It is not true for me. It is very hard to standardize a ethical framework with that obstacle in mind. Well, and you brought up a good point about how most medical students think. Yeah. They want the data. Show they me want. the data. Yeah. What, which drug is a patient going to do better on? Mm-hmm. More people did better on this one, mm-hmm. so we give this this drug. Definitely. It is consequentialism. Yeah. And so, they're, you know, I, I understand how so many of them want to apply it to how they should act, but, mm-hmm. you know, whether... Whether you take course of action A or B, mm-hmm. you can't really plan on the actions. We're not, re- or the outcomes rather. Mm-hmm. We're not responsible for the outcomes. We're responsible for what I did as a person. And so it's very different than the scientific stuff that we're used to looking at and analyzing. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think you hit the nail on the head with that. That's, that's got to be a huge barrier in evangelizing to people. It, it definitely is. And one thing that I feel kind of like I was deprived of in my in my undergraduate training was the richness of the Catholic moral tradition. It is unbelievably coherent, cohesive, and consistent throughout time. The influence of St. Thomas Aquinas obviously can't be overstated, um, but so fascinating and such a relief to conscience to know that we have this framework beautifully constructed based on the inherent dignity of the human person. And I just love learning more and more about that every day. And you're exploring this in a packed, practical setting with a special summer internship. This summer internship was has really been my dream job. Um, it is the perfect way for a Catholic medical student to form conscience, to form a decision-making framework of discernment before actually being thrust into the clinical scene. 
and your internship is? So, <laughs> before I get too excited, <laughs> I am a ethics intern with St. Vincent Hospital. St. Vincent, Indiana is a Catholic hospital system in Indiana. I work for the director of ethics integration, Dr. Elliot Bedford, who is a um, PhD trained healthcare ethicist. He is a wealth of information and a wonderful guide to different reading opportunities so that I can form my conscience well before I get thrust into these. And you get to actually sit in on multiple hospitals, ethics committees and discuss specific cases and Mm -hmm. sometimes even go to the bedside. Is that right? So I have not been to the bedside I have had um, minimal interaction with families and, and such, okay. but but you are right. I, it's a lot of ethics committees, and it is some ethics consults. What is really wonderful to see is the incorporation of the ethical and religious directives for healthcare at the organizational level at St. Vincent. It is a beautiful thing to see Christ proclaimed in organizational policy and even amongst the organizational leadership. It is it is really wonderful. The internship is an incredible gift to me. And so this is your summer between your first and second mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. Looking forward, how do, how do you think the second year will be different than your first year? So hopefully um, this complex I have goes away where I don't think I'm going <laughs> to <think it. laughs> um, Or maybe you could just turn it into humility and then that's a virtue. That's, that's, <laughs> I pray for that. <laughs> so hopefully I have a lot of my study habits down. My time management skills hopefully have been honed nicely. Hopefully, my second year glides by into the culmination of my second year in the two years of medical school, and that's the uh, standardized board examinations at the end of the second year. Will you have more patient interaction this year? Probably not. So this second, the first two years have very minimal patient interactions, but then the third and fourth years are our clerkship rotation years when we have the opportunity to see patients and to learn under a a clinical guide, so more in a clinical setting. Well, Brendan, this has been fascinating. Uh, We look forward to doing it again next year after the second year, so we will chronicle your four years of medical school and maybe each year of uh, residency after that. Who knows where this will go? But uh, thank you for being with us today, Brendan. Thank you very much for coming in. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. We're back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to this week's trivia question, which was, what is the Bacchus Maneuver? And for those of you knowledgeable people out there who might have had some classics education, Bacchus is also the god Dionysius, who is the god of wine and revelry. So what does this have to do with anything? I didn't know until my son pointed out that In college dormitories, oftentimes college students drink too much alcohol. And if somebody passes out from drinking too much, they're often passed out on their back. And you can Google on the internet Bacchus Maneuver, B-A-C-C-H-U-S. It shows you how to turn somebody from their back onto their stomach so that one of their hands or wrists is underneath their chin and it helps keep their airway open so that if they vomit while they're passed out, they won't choke on their secretions and potentially die. Now, if you put someone in this position, you're not supposed to leave them alone, but you're supposed to find somebody to go get help. But this can prevent an aspiration pneumonia where you might inhale some vomit uh, and therefore die. So it's an unfortunate reality that we're dealing with on some of our college campuses, but there are many colleges around the country teaching that. Had you ever heard of this, Andrew? I had not, but I do like the name also. It, it, it helps you remember what it is. I think on a test that would help me. Yes, it would. <laughs> and as you know, uh, as we are now the official Catholic Medical Association radio show, we have a segment that we recently started called Lineker for the Laity. The, the Lineker uh, Quarterly is our medical moral journal that dates back to 19. 19- 32. And we have today uh, a recent um, author, Dr. Wes Eli. Did I pronounce that correctly, Wes? Is it Eli? 
Uh, we say Ely, but it doesn't matter, whatever you want. Like Ely, Minnesota, same spelling. There Dr. You go. Wes Ely, who works in intensive care unit research uh, at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, uh, particularly acquired brain disease while in the intensive care unit. Welcome to our show, Wes. Thank you so much, Tom and Andrew. It's my pleasure. Wes wrote this article called Baptism in the ICU. Now, just sit with that. What kind of image does that put in your minds? Well, well, Dr. Ely is going to unwrap this for us, but also we just learned that very recently this was awarded uh, an honorable mention from the Catholic Press Association for articles dealing with the sacraments. Is that right, Wes? Yes, we just found that out. So that's uh, maybe other people will find the story. That would be helpful for us just to think through uh, the performance of sacraments during critical illness and during the hospitalization, which are oftentimes available to our patients. Now, you're obviously not at a Catholic institution. Uh, set up the story of this patient for our listeners. Absolutely. I was actually, I, I practiced both at Vanderbilt and the Veterans Administration Hospital. So this was at a government-run uh, obviously, secular hospital where I care for patients who are critically ill on mechanical ventilation and life support and in shock. And we had a very elderly gentleman who looked about old enough to have been around for the Hoover administration. <laughs> and uh, he, he really was. And, and he was critically ill on a ventilator, very profoundly delirious for several days in a row, and extremely frail. And we were trying to do the best we could to either help him survive or have a comfortable dying process. And the family was just extremely interested in what was wrong with him, how long he would live, et cetera. And as I often do, I tried to flip that question around to say, let's not, let's not focus as much as what's on, what's the matter with him, but what matters to him. And so I asked that question, and the next morning when I walked in, on the whiteboard next to his bed was the goals of the day, which were to take care of his fever so that he'd remain comfortable, stabilize his blood pressure, and then the third thing it said was baptism. And that's the setup for the story is, what do you do when, it's, when you're asked to perform a baptism on a patient in the ICU who is critically ill with a lot of electrical devices, etc.? And the end of my just little intro to this is that I thought, well, no big deal. I'm Catholic. We can do a little water <laughs> sprinkling. And not, not a danger. But the, fa the family looked at me and said, no, Doc, Jesus didn't get a sprinkling. He went full dunk. So we're talking full dunk. <laughs> okay. And that's, that's where we started with this story. Well, let's back up a little bit, because the first question I had wanted to ask you was about your concept of flipping it. And I, I thought you meant it in terms of the residents or fellows that you're training, but you meant it with the family. I absolutely did. I wanted to, well, I often flip it with the residents as well, but in this case, the family can be extremely focused on the, you know, the most minute aspects of their loved one's care. And really what we have to do is get down to the bottom line of who is this person that we're serving there? What's the best way to serve them? Well, I think we have to know who they are and what matters to them to understand that. And I think it's not as much about their CBC or their renal dysfunction. You know, those, those things matter tremendously, but sometimes the spiritual and, uh, you know, kind of more, you know, uh, mind, mind, body, spirit. So it's not always body. A lot of times the cognitive aspects and the spiritual aspects of the illness are, you know, more important than some of the physical things that we're there to take care of. You know, in giving talks about suffering, I've learned a lot from others, particularly uh, something, a piece you have on CNN, and that is we can help people in their suffering even if they don't have a Christian worldview by that simple question you ask, what matters to him now? What goals does he have even short-term right now? Have you found that be, to be true with patients who are suffering? Absolutely. You know, it, it, and, and I think in that CNN piece that, that you were referring to, I had a patient ask me to kill him, and I, I realized that what was happening here was that the patient had, was completely devoid of any purpose or meaning in life. And as I cited there, the famous Nietzsche quote was, you know, if a man has a, a why to live, he can get by with almost any how. Yes. And so I oftentimes make it my main goal as the patient's physician to help them find their why to live. 
And I do that with the help of saint mentors. You know, Dr. Joseph Muscati comes to mind yes. immediately as he walks into rooms with me on my shoulder, whispering <laughs> to me in my ear, saying, Wes, you know, help, let's find the meaning here for this person. And, and these saints like Muscati or Gianamola help me each day to keep stay focused on these, on these aspects of care. How, how do you see the patient's kind of demeanor change when you flip it like that? Do you, do you notice a huge change just in your daily interactions? Absolutely. A lot of times when I first walk in a room, the patients are kind of glazed over and, and, and maybe they have had so many experiences of being kind of dehumanized and or put into a, you know, a case. This is a great case in room 10 or something like that. <laughs> but, you know, and it's not just me, but, but so many times the nurses or other healthcare professionals on our team do a great job during critical illness. When, when you think that we just be focused on the beeps and the buzzers, nowadays we have programs like the ICU Liberation Project and what we call an ABCDEF bundle, which are very, very humanizing, paying a lot of attention to human dignity. And we just look the person in the eyes and, and, and talk to them, you know, excuse me, sir, introduce ourselves, show them full, uh, complete respect of who they are and, and that we're there to serve them. And, and, and then you start to see the person look at you and say, wow, I can, I can really help express what I need here. And that just makes all the difference. Well, pick up the story. Tell us what happens next toward the full dunk. Okay, so that day when they had the baptism written up, the, 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 the son and the daughter, the son actually had just been baptized himself, and the son and the daughter took me aside and said, you know, Daddy really has expressed to us, yesterday you said what matters to Dad. All in the evening we talked to Dad. His delirium had cleared. He was now competent. And he expressed to us that he wanted to be baptized, and, and he had never been a Christian in his life. And they said, is this possible? How can we organize this? And so we began to kind of work through the details of what that would look like, and the nurses went to Costco, got a very large <laughs> swimming pool. <laughs> they, they blew it up. They, they cleared out a whole area. Luckily, these VA ICU beds, ICU rooms are pretty large, <laughs> and they blew this whole swimming pool up and put it in there. Then we had to figure out how to fill it up with water that would be warm, and so at first we started a kind of a bucket brigade, but that was totally messy, and the water was cold, and that wouldn't work. I mean, I figured we, we could kill him, seriously kill him if we put him down in a, a pool of cold water. So they ingeniously talked to the dialysis people and got some dialysis hosing oh my goodness. and ran a continuous bath of warm water into oh, this that pool. that is nice. Uh, incredible design here, and so it was nice and, and toasty water, and we then used the lift in the room to lift up uh, Benny, we call him for the purposes of the story, lifted up Benny, put him down in that, in that warm water, disconnected the ventilator at that time, bagged him on the ventilator, and, <laughs> and then his son baptized him in the name of, of uh, Jesus Christ and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And while a, while a, 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 a wonderful nurse and chaplain sang Amazing Grace, and I'll tell you, um, there awesome. was not a dry eye in the house. Oh, How man. could there be? Did, did they take pictures or, or film this? Tons of pictures, tons of pictures, videos. Um, it's, uh, it's all completely documented. And I wrote, I wrote it up as a Wall Street Journal op-ed, and the WSJ took it right away and got an incredible amount of feedback from that in this you know, secular newspaper. And then people started asking to reproduce it. So it's been reproduced. You know, I would never reproduce an original publication of data for research. That would be called duplicate publication. But in this case, this story with the original citation of the Wall Street Journal has been reproduced in, in medical journals like the Intensive Care Medicine. Well, I think the medical journals, the main point there, and I added an author addendum, was that this is not about just Christianity, of course. This is about human dignity yes. and respect of person. And I always ask the patients, you know, what, what are your spiritual values? And if you have any that I should know about, please let me know. And just as much as, as if I hear that they're Christian or Muslim or, or Hindu or, or, or Buddhist or, or, or uh, Jewish, and I get them the appropriate you know, professionals within their religion, if I hear that they're atheists, then I want to respect those atheist views as well. So I, I think that, that this is about human 
dignity and respect of human rights and 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 expression of of spiritual values. Now, in the article, it mentions that you had there was at least one atheist nurse and another atheist in there who were fully supportive of what you were doing for Benny. Yeah, that's great that you bring that up because. I, I mean, one of the nurses said right off the bat, look, I'm an atheist, and, and I, I don't even think this is nuts. I think this is completely right. This is, this is what human dignity is all about. We're granting a man his dying wish. And I thought that was wonderful. And I really do find that people of all different walks of life, spiritually, they're caring for a critically ill patient, can come together over human dignity and respect for, for, the, for the human person. There was another topic in your article that I think is worth the last couple of minutes here, and you were talking about the difference between sympathy and empathy. Well, that, that's a great—you know, this is a commonly misunderstood area, and there are some pretty famous books on this topic, and uh, Halpern is one I cite, uh, Dorothy Day, uh, the famous Catholic worker— yes founder who's up for sainthood. She's written a lot about human dignity. But, but the main distinction is that sympathy is when you feel sorry for someone, Yes. and empathy is when you're feeling with someone. And, and to, 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 to really express empathy and, and, to, and to show somebody mercy means to be with them in their suffering. And I like this definition of, of mercy, which is to dive down into the chaos of another person's life, and then provide lifting and healing. And so in this particular baptism story, we're diving down into the chaos of our patient's life and that of his son and daughter, and then providing lifting and healing by showing him dignity and respect for his wishes. And that's really where I find the vocation of being a physician is all about. And we have to, every single day of our life as a physician and, or a healthcare professional, ask ourselves, are we showing that sort of empathy? And when we stray from that, ask God to bring us back in the right direction. Wes, you are an incredible example of a humane and holy physician. Thank you for being with us. And thank you, our listeners, for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. For more information about the Catholic Medical Association, find us on our website, cathmed.org, that's C-A-T-H-M-E-D dot O-R-G. Thank you for listening. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until next time. And remember, your medical decisions may have profound consequences. So choose wisely. Choose Catholic.